Some rounds, birdies can be hard to come by. Fortunately for us all, some don't require that solid iron game to be found. Welcome to Bird Watchers, an expression of our eternal devotion to all things bird. Trade the rangefinder for a pair of binocs and keep an eye out for this week's featured bird. Surprise. This week's featured bird is not a bird at all. <laughs> Actually, it is a bird. That was one of the questions I had coming in. Okay, before I go, I don't know why we even pretend <laughs> that we're hiding what the bird of the week is. <laughs> um, so this week's bird of the week, uh, we're discussing puffins, not just one, but all three species. And that was one of the questions I had coming in to doing my research on puffins was, are puffins actually even birds? When you look at them, I mean, kind of like penguins, like people quite like, are penguins like birds? Like they're, they look like birds, they have bills, but penguins don't fly. Obviously, puffins and penguins aren't related, but they look alike. So we kind of group them together in our minds, I think. Yeah. After listening to the bird call, you know, to get prepped for that, uh, <laughs> I burst out laughing when I heard what it actually sounded like. I was like, there's no way this is a puffin. That took me, I, I would assume that our, all of our friends in the uh, northern parts of the continent and uh, UK, Iceland, everywhere that uh, you find puffins, uh, I think that, <laughs> yeah, they probably got a kick out of that. Because <laughs> I'm sure it's a familiar call. They're uh, huge tourist draws. People travel from all around to see them. Uh, so if you've ever seen a puffin, I'm sure that was, yeah. I'm super stoked on this this episode and this bird in general, learning more about it. Uh, Kendra, we j- just was out at Bannon Dunes and, uh, you know, for those of They've played out there or, or not, you, you certainly will recognize the logo, Bandon Dunes being a puffin. It is one of the most cool looking birds that I've seen. And after uh, today's episode, I'm sure we're going to hear lots of cool, interesting facts about them. I'm, I'm just super excited. Yeah, before we, uh, per usual, Luke, I need to I need to hear about some other birds. Uh, if you played, it's been cold. Haven't hasn't been conducive weather to golf, but have you have you managed to get some in? It's been cold and wet. Um, I actually pulled my back. I am getting old, Jeb. (laughs) I pulled my back and it wasn't anything super exciting. I was lifting potting soil and it uh, immediately sent a jolt through my latissimus or rhomboid area. And I could not... The the, the what? (laughs) My lats area, my rhomboids, like middle back. You know, I've definitely hurt my neck before. I've hurt my lower back, but this is the first time I've felt pain like that, just in the middle of my back, it, it was excruciating, dis- disabling. Uh, needless to say, I have not played golf in the past week. <laughs> yeah, I can. I would be there with you. I've been fortunate. I've never, never had any kind of like serious muscular injuries. Well, that's because like, you're I still have, young, Jeb. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I know even you know like playing high school sports, like playing high school soccer. I, the only time I ever missed game time was I got a concussion. I actually got two within the space of two weeks. So I missed some game time for that, but that know, explains a lot. Other guys no, who are kidding. much better. <laughs> uh, well, it depends on who you ask. My mother would tell you that <laughs> it may, might explain a lot. You know, she would always say that, "Oh, thank goodness you hit your head. It's the hardest part on your body." But we, um, you know, even guys that were more fit, athletic than I was, seemed to always have hamstring. Or they had to, you know, ice their 
ice their legs after games and stuff like that, and I've, I never really had that issue. So I've been lucky, but I have felt that I can feel my lack of fitness affecting my golf game for sure. I feel like the ball is cold, sure, but I feel like I'm just not quite twerking, quite not quite, and I attribute that to getting out of shape. I'm catching up to you. I'll be, I'll be 28 this year, so I'm not young, young anymore. It's been a while since I've yeah exercise regularly once you hit that 30 year milestone it all starts catching up real quick but what about you have you been playing golf uh i have gone on the golf course yeah golf hasn't been too good lately shout out charles west who shot his career low in the 39 degree weather this past weekend out at old uh rga raleigh golf association cool little track fun track uh we played 23 uh props to charles he's been somebody who is gotten into the game in the last year, year and a half, and then in the last year caught the bug hard. And I text friends on a Friday who wants to play golf. No, it's too cold. And Charles is like, I'm all about it. And we go out there and walking. He got a push cart for himself so he can start walking and shot 86, his career low. Whooped my butt. Let's see, he chipped in for birdie on the last hole to have everything, (laughs) (laughs) to have the match and everything. We had some extra playoff holes and what. So that was the only bird made all day, and he – he uh, stepped up and chipped it in. That's awesome. Yeah, that was a cool. That was cool. So, shout out to you, Charles. Um, I'm coming for you next time I get shots. <laughs> Speaking of that, texting your friends to go play golf. Uh, quick plug here: we've got a little Slack channel rolling for Raleigh golf homies, as well as golf homies across the country. Where if uh, you're looking to meet people local and setting up rounds, things of that nature, um, we've got those those channels going. So. If you want to be included on that, shoot us a DM on Instagram or shoot us an email, and we'd be happy happy to add you to the Lion Loft Slack channel. Um, well, cool. So let's, uh, I guess, get into this week's bird, because I can't wait to hear more about it. This week's bird, the puffin. Man, what a they are such cool birds. I've seen them in, um, in the zoo. I actually think one of the, maybe the aquarium down at Fort Fisher has puffins even. They're so cool. They're like, so they stand about, they're a foot, a little over a foot tall at their biggest, and they weigh, what is it, uh, like two pounds. So like short, stout, uh, like a lot of diving birds. They, they actually remind me of ruddy ducks, my mother's favorite ducks. Uh, anybody who lives on the coast, um, especially the East Coast, will be familiar with ruddies, these little like steamboat-looking birds that run around with their tails in the air, and they're also like really short-legged, stock stocky bodied birds and they're divers and that was one of the things that struck strikes me about looking at the puffin they remind me of ruddy ducks and that they've got these short little wings that they can use to they can actually fly with uh which seems like it defy gravity you you said uh you described it as they look like footballs flying through the air which is so true you can hardly see their wings so they just look like these <laughs> flying footballs flying and they congregate by the millions yeah it does i imagine make for a sight which again is why they're they're a global treasure everywhere you go people are coming if everywhere you go where there are puffins you will find a lot of people who are coming to see the puffins so we have three species the atlantic puffin the horned puffin and the tufted puffin uh tufted and horned puffins are pacific birds um hanging out uh as far south as california on the north american continent although in the last century century and a half they've rapidly or they've been quickly moving further and further north. So there are many places as you or many rocky islands you used to find puffins off the coast of California where you no longer do. And now the majority of the population is concentrated in Alaska, but as far south as Oregon, 
uh, out at Bandon. I'm sure they have puffins that come through that area. Um, Washington State, which I think is the only state that has classified puffin as a threatened species or given them some kind of threatened classification. Because all the, the populations are declining globally, we can say, they're still not in a state of being threatened or endangered. The global populations are healthy. They're just more concentrated into fewer areas now. Uh, we'll get into all those things. Um, the Atlantic puffin in particular, uh, so Atlantic puffins make up what, like 60% of the world's population of all puffins. Um, and I think 60% of Atlantic puffins live in Iceland. So they're uh, obviously cold weather birds uh, in the UK, Wales, um, any kind of uh, rocky outcropped nation, uh, you'll find these Atlantic puffins. And then, of course, the Gulf of Maine, what British Columbia, all of eastern Canada, up and down the coastline, find puffins. So they're really widely distributed uh, Atlantic puffins are in that area. Behaviors are kind of the same amongst all three. Uh, they're diving birds. They short flights, short migrations. One thing that is unique about the Atlantic puffin is that there, are some, there have been a lot more studies on their migration patterns. They tend to migrate further. And they actually, there is no, when we think of mass migrations, we think of all the birds just up and leaving and flying together to another spot and then landing. And, but actually, each, then they, when they know this based on banding and tracking, that Atlantic puffins, it seems to be random the way in which they migrate. Uh, they, they go individually, and they only come back to their lifelong partner during the breeding season, where they'll congregate back in colonies. They can spot out their partner, which, again, uh, we talked about with some other species is amazing to me, that they can like come back year on year to the same place, find the same partner, go to the same nesting site, and you know spend three months together again. Um, but they migrate solitarily, although in large groups, the group isn't just one group moving from spot to spot. The group is always changing and new birds are coming in and new birds are leaving. And they're going to just all these different places that they've visited throughout their life. And they, they do follow somewhat of a pattern year on year, each individual puffin, but they don't migrate in large groups, mm -hmm. which is interesting because we actually know relatively little about bird migration in general, uh, no matter what the species is, you know, like the, the migration of cranes is well documented. We, we have people go out and help them. Um, the migration of, I think we talked about pelicans, how they we're just starting to learn about maybe the specifics of brown pelican migrations and how climate change might be affecting, but we're still just learning that. Puffins, again, like we've just started learning in the last five years uh, on these th that kind of behavior. And I think that's like worth noting because it's really, as far as we know, like super interesting and super unique and possibly super uh, useful in terms of using puffins as kind of an indicator species and learning how climate change... Um, access to food, weather patterns year on year, all these different factors are factoring into puffin migrations. Uh, so maybe in a far future we see where those, what used to be randomized pu individual puffin migration patterns all of a sudden start to look more uniform because maybe they have fewer places to go, fewer places they can find food. Then all of a sudden we can see, hey, now all of these puffins are going to the same spots year on year. So that's just an example of how we might be able to use puffins in the future as an indicator species for overall ecological health in these areas. So that was a long tangent. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's the thing I find most fascinating about them and the Atlantic puffin in particular. And Luke, you found some interesting stuff on them you wanted to share. Yeah, especially after learning about the brown pelican last week. What was neat to see with the, the, the puffin in general is they can dive up to uh, 80 meters deep. Something like 200 feet. 
which is crazy to think about <laughs> to get their get fish. Um, they fly up to 55 miles per hour, which seems pretty quick. Um, although they are supposedly not great flyers, so they end up spending most of their time just hanging out in the water. So they've got waterproof feathers. Another interesting fact I saw was regarding their beak, which we all recognize as being orange. Um, but in fact, their beak is gray uh, in the wintertime and it actually changes color throughout the year. So in the spring is when it turns orange, which is said to be for mating purposes and attracting a mate. So that springtime is when you're going to see, and that's when they're also at land most often for mating and nesting purposes is that orange beak color. So if you see them in the wild or wintertime, you, you might notice their beak is a different color. They, <laughs> I thought this was super cool. They carry uh, up to 10 or on average 10 fish at a time in their beak. And one was actually found in Britain carrying 62 fish at once, <laughs> which these are already a super small bird, right? I'm just envisioning 62 fish hanging out of its beak and definitely give that a Google uh, to see what that looks like. <laughs> they have this uh, like raspy tongue that holds the fish against the inside of their beak while they're able to open their mouth and open their beak and get more fish and load it up, carry it back to the nest. Yeah, the best pictures of Puffin are the pictures of Puffin with like a dozen fish, small fish hanging out of their beaks on every side. They just look so funny, so ridiculous. And why is that? You were saying... Uh... So they don't, you know, we, we typically associate with birds. Uh, usually when parents are feeding chicks, they bring them back, they chew up the food and like regurgitate it. And Puffin don't do that. Puffin uh, bring entire whole fish to their chicks so they can bring back 10 at a time. I think I read that tufted penguin chicks typically eat 14 small fish a day. Um, and when I say small, I mean, you know, these are very small. We're talking four inch long fish. And I forget there's a certain species of fish, um, on the West coast that we have most heavily associated the disappearance of that fish. And I can't, it's escaping me and I didn't put it in my notes. Um, there's a species, a small species of fish on the West coast that, Essentially, what has happened over the last 75 years, we've seen gull populations dramatically increase. Gulls are overfeeding on these fish, um, and in turn, these fish are moving further and further north where there are fewer and fewer gulls. And in return, since these are the puffins' favorite fish to eat, they're moving further and further north as well. So that's why we don't see them in California as often now. Um, and the reason for that is that because they're feeding entire fish to their chicks, they have to be of a certain size. And there has to be a certain prevalence. It's, you know, we're talking about a colony of, of say, 30,000 puffin, each raising one chick, um, which they only raise one a year and maybe not even every year. Th that's a lot of fish. You, know, you have to sustain that population. So that's, um, that, that, that's why they have this, uh, this certain thing they're linked to, and that's one of the things we have to look at in terms of the longevity of the puffin in the continental United States. Now, you said that they have one chick and a brood. Is that the right term? A brood? A brood, right. Uh, I, I feel like brood's a plural term. Okay. Maybe it, I, I, I could be very wrong with that. I've always, I don't know, brood seems like more than one. So maybe just one is just a, they're called pufflings. That's what I was going to say. Is, <laughs> is there a name for that? Uh, do you know if there's a name for a group of uh, puffins? I didn't see any terms uh, that stuck out. So you would just normal, a pod or a, a collective a group gotcha <laughs> a colony and by the way you the listeners out there feel free to fact check us on any of this stuff because uh like my good friend sam ratto said uh podcasts are just uh you know a plethora of of so quote unquote knowledge without uh google per se right there with you so <laughs> and some of these things um 
uh, are definitely, you know, through our own research, not because of uh, we went to school for this or anything. <laughs> Feel free to fact check always. We want to make sure we are spreading the gospel and not uh, heresies. Uh, what other interesting facts can you, did you, do you have on your notes over there? One of the, a cooler link, um, I've yet to go to Bandon yet. Um, and I know we have a lot of homies out on the West coast and, uh, there was, there's a unique puffin connection. So the oldest, uh, on the origin of puffin, the oldest known fossils are, are, were actually found in Oregon of, a, of, uh, it, it wasn't a puffin species that we know today, but, uh, it was placed in the same order, um, and, and it's in like puffin or in their own unique class. Uh, there, there aren't any other bird species that are exactly closely related to them. There are a few other gull-like birds, and they're all kind of characterized by how they dive for their food and the fact that they spend most of their time off of land. But um, they don't really have their their own unique thing. Um, and so they found this fossil in Oregon, and it's dated to some forty million years. Uh, they've also found tufted puffin. Um, the species we currently know, they found fossil records in North Carolina of puffin. And so the general thinking has always been that because we have more puffin uh, and more of uh, what is the auk is the name of the family of bird, uh, we have more auk diversity in the Northwest and on the Pacific Coast. Therefore, puffin must have or- originated somewhere in the Pacific. And then they've migrated over time and century, millennia, yada, yada. And now we've, we know the one species in the Atlantic. Uh, but there's actually a record, this fossil record kind of is uh, is one of numerous fossils found along the East Coast that suggest that maybe Puffin didn't originate in the Pacific. Maybe they could have originated in the Atlantic or maybe even further, way further south than we thought. And it's just uh, another example of how it's a, a, the whole field of understanding, you know, something as ubiquitous and as well seen, known, and heard about as a Puffin. We still, like, know so relatively little about the origin of these birds, what other ancestors they might have had how that might relate to us, um, what it might say about the history of ecological diversity in North America as a whole. So it's a, uh, but that really is, it's a cool connection between uh, Bannon and North Carolina. And maybe uh, we'll come to find out that it was co-emergent evolution. They merged on both sides at the same time. Well, if there's anything in common that I share with a puffin, it's that in the wintertime, my nose or beak definitely turns a little more gray when it's <laughs> cold outside and a little more orange in the summertime when it's warm. So... <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty corny Luke. <laughs> that's a that is a fun one though. That's you know, and a lot of birds do that where they reach coloration during the, the mating season and then drop it. I think the fact that it's the bill that changes is cool. I wonder I didn't look this up. I wonder if the bill's made out of something different than other bird bills. I know it's like that's like a weapon they use, which is a lot of birds don't use it. Birds usually are feet first kind of attackers. And so for a bird to be beak first, they must be really confident in like the strength of their head and their beaks. I wonder, I didn't find anything on that, but I do wonder if maybe that'd be something worth looking up. But that's what I've got on puffins. That's awesome, Jeb. In terms of what we got coming up for bird watchers, super excited about the next episode we're going to drop, which uh, Jeb and I took a trip back to his hometown uh, in Clinton, North Carolina and met with your mentor. Yeah, Mr. Don, uh, we talked about in the first podcast. Uh, I was super excited to take you down, show it off. This was back, um, I think, late summer when we made the trip. Uh, so you'll probably hear some references that date it. But uh, yeah, it was a super cool trip. Got to, Don took us to the aviaries. It was a gorgeous day. So we got to see all the birds in color and seeing um, he's uh, one of the best in the business when it comes to uh, captive breeding of endangered bird species. Yeah, we got to sit down with him talk about uh his career talk about 
um, all sorts of stuff and also have some great video from the day that we'll be compiling and putting together. He had some super interesting and unique birds that I've never seen before in my life. Uh, I mean, it is just incredible. One of them, in fact, was on the cover of National Geographic. Yeah, that's a really, really cool connection and uh, something going on right in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina, that nobody would ever know about, but it's so important to the biological health of pheasant species globally. So, yeah, that's that's really cool. Looking forward to hearing all that turns out and um, and sharing Don's experiences and, and uh, knowledge of birds with all of you. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Go check out the Puffin online if you want to learn more about that super interesting bird. And until next time. Caw-caw. 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 Caw-caw.